This podcast contains adult themes and some strong language. It's not television, it's not radio, it's not newspapers, but it has elements of every single one of those. What matters to me is do we provide the best customer service, internet, schminternet. Hello, I'm Endo Dowd and this is Web 1.0, a podcast series from the Irish Times that looks at arguments and innovations of the early internet. Everything we see today is through the prism of online networks, but I'm trying to look back at the origins of these networks and the stories of the people who created them. Interactive appetite, searching for a website, a window to the world, got to get online. Take a spin, now you're in with the techno set, you're going surfing on the internet. This episode looks at the dot-com boom and crash. Capitalism allowed the dot-com boom to happen, but I want to look at how money and valuations distorted expectations. For this episode, I talked to three different people from three different countries and very different companies to try to better understand the boom and bust. Today's the day I'm taking my family surfing around the world on the internet. Today, I'm going to show you a download that will blow your mind. No. It'll blow your mind. Jean-Michel Basquiat used to eat off the deli trays, you know, after our performances. He'd come backstage and hang out and be like picking, you know, cheese. And, you know, we knew everybody, Keith Haring. I met Madonna the day she came um, from Detroit. And we were all kind of friendly and supportive for the most part. This is Eugenie DeSerio. She was involved in two movements or waves. The first was in late 1970s New York with her band, The Model Citizens. Model Citizens was the first band formed with the Columbia people. That's the one John Cale produced our record. John Cale was one of the founding members of the Velvet Underground and one of the most visionary musicians of the 20th century. John Cale was like very moody, he was very aloof. I don't think he really did that much to us. I mean, he did add a bridge that nobody liked. Then after that, we all split up. And then my husband at the time, my ex-husband now, but we formed the, the dance and we toured a lot with the dance and had like three LPs and all these other records. The dance went on to release three albums, but met little success. This is their song, Do Dada, and its influence could be heard in New York 20 years later. With the House of Jealous Lovers. Anyway, her second wave started 10 years later, when, after a marriage breakdown, she was back living with her parents and her newborn son in Connecticut. I was on my own with my son, who's now 34, like a single mom, and I had to leave a difficult relationship. And I was like working, like as a secretary. And I was like, you know, I'm too, I'm too old to climb the corporate ladder. Like, what am I gonna do? And um, one day when I was poking around online and I found this, the AOL Greenhouse site, they were looking for um, entrepreneurs, you know, contentpreneurs, they used to call it. So I thought, what the heck? You know, I'd been an astrologer since my teenage years. And I was like, why not? You know, so that's when I developed the idea to do the astrology site, Astronet. Greenhouse was formed in the summer of 1994 by America Online. At the time, America Online was the most popular online service in the US, gaining a quarter of a million subscribers a month. It was an internet service provider along with offering internet services, instant messages, chat rooms, emails, etc. 
How long have you had this? About a week. And it's so easy. All you do is point and click. But how does it work? All you need is a computer and a regular phone line. They send you the software and give you 10 free hours to check it out. Call now for your free America Online Startup Kit and get free software and 10 free online hours. It's everything you need to get online. Their packages were for 10 hours of use a month, but they made money when people stayed online longer. So they wanted more content to keep people online. And this is where Greenhouse came in. It was offering $100,000 to $500,000 to people to build online spaces exclusively for America Online. And in the first six months of 1996, they planned to launch 70 greenhouse sites. If this seems like a ridiculous amount of investment, that's because it was. The internet was booming. AOL's stock had risen 2,800% in just over three years. Eugenie secured funding and her site, Astronet, was born November 13th, 1995, a Scorpio. I pitched them Astronet to be their astrology site. So my first check was like for $100,000. I was in my parents' basement and it was like, you know, I bought a computer, like a Dell computer. And, um, you know, I started to hire people and then they kept giving us more money. They kept putting money. I mean, it got up to, I said, about a million dollars. You know, it was just like, there was just so much money being thrown around in those days. Insurance workers, bin men, and a dentist will be celebrating too. Astrology was popular across society at the time. America's former First Lady Nancy Reagan had an astrology consultant. In her book, My Turn, Nancy Reagan says she relied on astrology as a crutch because of fears about her husband's safety after the assassination attempt. The White House Chief of Staff said at the time, quote, virtually every major move and decision the Reagans made during my time as White House Chief of Staff was cleared in advance by a woman in San Francisco who drew up horoscopes to make sure the planets were in a favorable alignment for the enterprise. Astrologer Joan Quigley told NBC News she and Mrs. Reagan talked constantly, sometimes several times a day. And I also uh, changed their evil empire attitude by briefing them on Gorbachev's horoscope. Intelligence officials say the CIA went nuts when it learned the First Lady was discussing U.S.-Soviet relations with an outsider on non-secure lines. Described by friends as superstitious, almost mystical, Reagan was inclined to defer to his wife's wishes. I have learned not to argue with her superstitions. Former aides say Ronald Reagan was a man who read his horoscope and the funnies before the rest of the paper. They say he wasn't only indulging his wife, that the former president also believed in astrology. Astrology was also huge business in the newspaper industry. Britain's best paid journalist in the 1990s was an astrologer. That's all to say it was very popular. And at a certain point, Astronet was one of the largest sites on America Online. And, um, you know, at this point, I had an office in town in New Canaan, Connecticut. I probably had 15 people working for us. There was so much energy. Everybody, everybody was so, like, pumped. And things were going really well. Astronet was the second most popular original content provider on AOL in 1998, with 1.2 million visits a day and 1.5 million visits a month to its worldwide website. Despite the success and hits to the site, the internet advertising was disappointing and the World Wide Web provided increased competition for AOL services. 
and AOL were pivoting to different investments. For all of this and more, AOL's interest in Astroness receded. A lot of the greenhouse properties that they had developed and funded, the profit stream wasn't what they wanted at the time. We actually got an offer to be acquired by America Online to be shut down. And this was when the stock was at the highest. I mean, I would have made stupid money, but you know, I didn't want to be acquired to be shut down. You know, I thought I was going to have my business for like 20 years. So at the time, that's, that was like, oh my God, it's my baby. It was now approaching the centre of the dot-com bubble. Valuations were fluctuating wildly. As AOL offloaded Astronet, the Hearst Corporation stepped in. Hearst were set up by William Randall Hearst, widely believed to be the inspiration for Orson Welles's Citizen Kane. They were a huge media conglomerate. Then Hearst, you know, the Hearst Corporation, like how mm-hmm. big can you get on that? And um, we ended up being acquired by them. And it was good for like the first year, but then it was just terrible. Astronet lost all its soul. I had just had my second child, who's now 22, and it was like, he was like a month old, and I get a call like, you know, we don't want you, you know, you're out. So the founder, they kicked the founder out. I guess being an astrologer, did you have a sense that things might turn out badly, you know, with regards to the dot-com crash? You know, it's, it's no, because um, if, if I did, I wouldn't have done that. In hindsight, it probably wouldn't have mattered to the outcome if Eugenie was kept on at AOL. The company went through its own merger with Time Warner in early 2000. The merger of the number one internet company with the number one media company will bring together the best of both worlds. Tonight, a special edition of CNN Newsstand looks beyond the hot links and the sound bites. It was and is the largest merger in American business history. I did it with as much or more excitement and enthusiasm as I did on that night when I first made love some 42 years ago. And it was an unmitigated disaster. It's been three years since America Online stunned the business world by announcing it was buying Time Warner. In that short time, AOL Time Warner has lost nearly $200 billion of its shareholders' money. The biggest shareholder in the deal was Ted Turner, and he later says, quote, the Time Warner-AOL merger could pass into history like the Vietnam War and the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. It was one of the biggest disasters that have occurred to our country. I lost 80% of my worth and subsequently lost my job. We looked it up to see if I was the biggest loser of all time because I lost about $8 billion. In a similar way, but on a smaller scale, Eugenie was paid mostly in shares for Astronet. Meanwhile, we had restricted stock. And then the um, dot-com crash happened. So by the time we could sell the stock, you know, we didn't... So at the end of the day, I made money. Not stupid money, yet there were times. Some people made really stupid money back then, you know, like tens of millions for doing almost nothing. And so Eugenie's second wave came to a crashing end. But it was just as another was starting. And if Eugenie missed out on stupid money, Jan Wellman hoovered it up. He formed Riot Entertainment in Helsinki. And Jan was a born entrepreneur. First business was in uh, advertising, which I set up in 1990s with a couple couple of buddies. And we were quite arrogant and we grew very quickly. And one of my big clients was Nokia. And they liked my work a lot. So they came to me in 98. By this time, mobile phones were becoming ubiquitous. The Nokia 6110 had a small monochrome screen with 48 by 84 black and white pixels. 
Nokia, the Finnish-based company, was the highest-selling phone company in the world in 1997. And they also spent 760 million euro that year in research and development. Which is to say that there was a lot of money in Finland at the time. And Jan got wind of it. So they asked, asked me what could be done with this one and a half inch screen in the next couple of years in terms of content. Of course, I had no idea what could be done, but I said yes. And during that weekend, I drank two bottles of red wine and got together with my friends and we brainstormed some ideas. And from that wine-soaked weekend, Jan developed an idea. And in February 2000, at the apex of the dot-com bubble, Riot Entertainment was founded. One of the strong areas I could handle well was write these fantastical business plans that had absolutely no sane part in them. I wrote this business plan with that in mind, and then uh, I integrated an aspect into that, which is that we would go to Hollywood and buy all the rights to top entertainment properties, including Marvel. And we would integrate that into the future of gaming. So for a little guy from Finland, it was a big deal because uh, it immediately went to the top. It went to the CEO. And just a few weeks later, they signed up for five million. And then uh, they took me to London. And suddenly I was sitting with the representative of Murdoch his right hand, who just got $1 billion. This was the like the heyday of the internet explosion. I could have raised $50 million in the next few weeks, but I kept it down to 15. And that's how we got into it. Riot burned through money. And by July 2001, they had offices in Helsinki, Singapore, Manila, London, Paris, Berlin, Rome, and Los Angeles. You know, this is the heydays of the internet boom. So they actually told me to burn, 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 burn as much as I could. So I was burning a million a month. Staffing right though, brought its own issues. You know, a lot of, a lot of uh, management gurus talk about chemistry. And I talk about the field. What is the field happening? There? There's an electromagnetic event happening when people get together. It's deeper than biochemistry and it's deeper than hormones. So I didn't really necessarily go for the people who were the absolute experts in their area. I went for people who had a certain kind of attitude and and fit into our field, which was a little bit crazy. It was a little bit out there. It was entrepreneurialism at at its best. Uh, So you don't want to bring a classical conservative nine to five person in that environment, they will be destroyed very quickly. So in lieu of classical nine to five people, they hired, among others, a former porn model, a Russian high school student, a priest on leave of absence, a former television host, and a swordsman who originally modeled in a riot advertisement and was chosen as head of personnel. Anyway, the team did deliver basic products, but these products were in huge demand. The telecom companies only had really one product. They were selling data. So they were very hard for them to differentiate. So we could go to any telecom and I would say, listen, what if you could co-brand your property with Lord of the Rings? You know, they spent anything between 50 million and 200 million in publicity and advertising and merchandising. That was an unbeatable business proposition. And that's how actually in one and a half years, even though we were technologically the most superior company, that's how we got going. 
There's money to be made in a wireless world and lots of it. Right now, there are almost 500 million cell phone subscribers on the planet. Within two years, that could double to a billion. There was a lot of money floating around in mobile phone tasks at the time. Ringtones were originally monophonic, meaning they could only play one 8-bit note at a time. But they were a huge business. Ringtones, screensavers, simple games, you know, basically rock, paper, scissor rebranded into, into a lot of the rings environment and ridiculous, you know, just ridiculous. I mean, people were paying crazy amounts of money for that shit. Just lose it. Be first to get the brand new official M&M ringtone or true tone on your mobile. Just text 85123. In 2001, the Japanese spent $300 million on ringtones. There was even money in wallpapers, which was where people could customise their home screen with pixel art. Looking back at this now, it all feels kind of cringy. But it was a huge advancement. It illustrated how frictionless payments could be made on mobiles. And the centralised spaces to buy and sell these ringtones were a precursor to the App Store. This all goes some way to explain why so much money ended up in Riot, who in turn spent a lot of it on parties, office saunas and debauchery. Yes, it was there and I encouraged it. I think it's a good idea. Let off some steam and build some steam, then let off some steam. That's, a, <laughs> that's how you stay healthy. You're talking about steam, like I understand there was a sauna in the place and was there a porn film recorded in the saunas? Yeah, I found out later that someone had... Uh, made uh, a, a soft erotic film, but this was, you know, not under my supervision, nor was I directing it. The film is called Portimot, and I couldn't track it down, but it appears to be a cross between a porno and a Pasolini film. One former employee recalls it being, quote, all kinds of things that are not normally seen in traditional adult entertainment films, telephone conversations in the middle of the act, insurmountable erection difficulties, autobiographical monologues, and the cinematographer making brutal jokes about the total clumsiness of the performance. End quote. Is that not, was that not like kind of slightly shocking to you as a CEO? Or is that like, is, am I just like kind of a prudish Irish person who doesn't kind of get that? Well, Finland has a different uh, culture. It's quite, quite liberal culture, sexually. Uh, you start early. And um, at least when I was growing up, I, I was born in 1966. You know, before you went on a date, you would have sex just to fi find out is it worth worthy of going on a date. And it's a different attitude. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just a different different approach to the whole thing. But I was aware of the culture overall because I inspired it to have fun and work hard. They come often together. There's a lot of other stories of the time in the company of people getting naked, oiling themselves up and wrestling in restaurants and company credit cards being used in all sorts of establishments that themselves are unlikely to be tax compliant. It was a boomy and probably less conservative time than today. But the market was crashing and 9-11 accelerated the slide. We needed more cash and the investors said no because the market had just crashed. A classic situation. We were doing really well. With, we had a beautiful team we could have easily cut down uh, the burn rate uh, but it was a uh, investor and board decision you know they say 
we're going to pull out of internet because the internet is crashing. It's, it's like cows talking to each other. You know, one says moo, the other one says moo. And then everyone goes moo. So this is how the uh, institutional investors who operate. And of course, it was just temporary. But in that emotional mindset, which was a collective investor mindset, they just pulled the rug from uh, under, under everyone. And so, after burning through $20 million in two years, Riot went bankrupt. But they did make some good investments. We bought the entire Marvel library for less, less than $2 million. After the company crashed because the, the internet crashed, six months it was valued at over half a billion, those properties. So we were just, just there at the right time, but we also broke down too soon, six months too soon. Ding 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 bam dum dum bam 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 get the crazy frog as a ringtone on your mobile now for just 3 pounds you can choose up to 5 ringtones a week from just 60 per tone Yan is probably right 6 years later in 2007 the global ringtone sales peaked at 1.1 billion dollars and at the time ringtone sales accounted for almost half of some record companies income but after 2007, the sales quickly evaporated for a number of reasons, primarily because people stopped calling each other. I asked Jan if he had any regrets. I never had that attitude, oh, wow, I, you know, uh, I regret anything I have done. I don't really as much. Uh, it was for me, it felt almost always like a game. Personally, for me, it was a good game and, and like the Native Americans used to, used to say that, you know, it's a good day to die. Um, so it was a good day to die then. And in fact, I financed the next company within 20, 24 hours. The final person I wanted to talk to for this episode does have some regrets, but we'll get to them later. In the 1990s, Baroness Martha Lane Fox revolutionised something we don't even think to name anymore, e-commerce. I asked Baroness Fox if she believed she had a privileged upbringing. 100%. I um, went to some of the best schools in the country, so I definitely would describe it as privileged. Martha Lane Fox is the daughter of Oxford historian and Financial Times gardening columnist Robin Lane Fox. And she first encountered the internet in 1994. I remember I was leaving university in 1994 and a good friend of mine, Toby, showed me the internet for the first time. I really remember it clearly. And I was not a technologist, I studied ancient modern history. And I was like, wow, look at this. I remember it was slow. It was really slow. I think that is my dominant thought of the internet. We used to watch the pages go duk, 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 down. The early internet had quite basic services on it. Email, message boards, etc. But e-commerce was very limited. It was a friend of Martha, Brent Hoberman, who approached her with an idea that would transform her life and the possibilities of the internet. You know, we were lucky to be early um, in a very much of rapidly growing industry. And we had a, I think, unique proposition with lastminute.com. Basically, it was very easy to explain to people why they should want it. The idea was to build a website called lastminute.com, which would allow people to buy cut price deals on holidays or flights. This was revolutionary in a time where there was travel agents on every high street. Well, you couldn't book flights. I mean, that was completely impossible in 95. But in 97, 98, that was really when it was just emerging. We launched the website in 98 and 
you know, we really were some of the first, one of the first places to let people book that kind of travel product. Buying and selling things online now is second nature, but building public trust in the mid-90s was incredibly difficult. There was very low trust. People did not think that they would be safe putting their credit card details into a website. The idea that you would buy something and then it would appear was completely alien. So it was slow and it was just mistrusted and although kind of miraculous to a small few, it was really still quite a niche activity. But it wasn't just the public's trust in the internet Marta had to push back against. Misogyny at the time was very overt. The first venture capitalist that Brent and I got a meeting with, the first one and practically only one, and we were so nervous and we needed the money. He said, I've only got one question. And he looked at Brent and he said, what happens if she gets pregnant? And it was so shocking to a 25-year-old woman trying to start a business that, you know, that really did kind of traumatise me to a degree, not really, but, you know, marginally. And then I think, you know, I was just often the only woman in the room. Technology is bad. Travel was absolutely outrageous. It was so bad. Every single person of power in travel was a man. It was very hard to find women. They were all, you know, the more junior roles. So, so that double whammy was horrible. And then you think about you know, taking a company public, and I think I've already saw that one fund manager. It was few and far between. So I think I just always felt quite alone in it, as opposed to feeling like I was up against misogyny. I just was used to it. And... You know, I was very lucky and the person I was working with, Brent, was the least misogynistic person. I could share everything with him and that made a huge difference, obviously. Marta persisted with airlines and a deal opened up. I was 25 and, you know, we were winging it. I think that I remember calling Haldor Haldidsson, who was the um, flight sales manager at Iceland Air, probably about 200 times per man. And finally he, rel- he relented. Then we got Iceland Air to give us 99 pound flights to New York, which was just jaw-dropping at the time. People were kind of like, my God, I can't believe I can get to New York for 99 pounds. And that unlocked a lot of kind of motivation in our customer base. And then when suppliers saw that we could really shift product and we're selling all of these flights, that unlocked something as well. Lastminute.com quickly became one of the UK's most recognised internet brands and led to a world where anyone could buy cheap airline flights. What we supply are flights, hotels, package holidays, entertainment tickets, gifts and restaurants. By the end of the 1990s, a number of internet companies were floating on the stock market as venture capitalists were eager to cash out. It was a crazy time and the height of the dot-com boom. This year, this first year of our operation, we're going to be turning over over $10 million and that's real numbers and we're confident that we can times that in by many, many zeros in in the future years. It's obviously our intention to take LastMinute.com public next year. It will just help us grow the company, build a bigger customer base. On January 30th, 2000, 12 of the 61 ads for Super Bowl 34 were purchased by dot-com companies. There was huge pressure on LastMinute.com to deliver for their investors. The original venture capitalists wanted to get um, liquidity out of the business and it just felt like the momentum was building. But we were nervous. We could see that there was a lot of fluff in the market and that the potential for a collapse was quite intense. But at the same time, you have a responsibility to get the maximum amount of money for the company to put it in the most safe long-term position. And on March the 14th, 2000, lastminute.com was floated. Martha was just 27 years old at the time and the company had been operating for less than two years and yet to make a profit. The share price was set at 380p. I remember so clearly at about four o'clock in the morning, the night before the flotation, and Brent and I knew we had to be back in the office at 7 a.m. We are having a final conversation and I remember Brent saying to me, this, you know, this, is, <laughs> this is nerve-wracking, this is not a slam dunk. 
I remember getting up, having had about two hours sleep, going into the office and completely misjudging it, walking around the corner to our office and there being a bank of TV cameras, film crews. It was insane, the public attention. I actually remember thinking, oh my God, why didn't I wash my hair? That was the main thing that I had in my head. And then, you know, everyone was very excited in the office, but Brent and I definitely still had this residual anxiety about what the future was going to hold. The shares shot up to 511p within an hour of trading, valuing the company at £768 million. They fell back a little over the course of the day, but it was a huge success. And I remember Brent and I walking around the block, just feeling completely overwhelmed by this intensity of scrutiny and speculation about what was going to happen and feeling like we were carrying the weight of what we knew was not going to be an easy ride. But then it started to climb down again and there's just a massive amount of pressure. So, you know, it was a lot. It was just a lot. That's what I remember. And it felt more intense and more difficult after that. March the 14th was a great day for LastMinute.com, but the tide was turning. Four days earlier, on Friday, March the 10th, year 2000, the Nasdaq peaked and it was to be the height of the dot-com bubble. And just the day before last minute's flotation, the Japanese economy entered a recession, furthering a tech stock slump. The following Super Bowl had just four ads for dot-com companies. And the September 11th attacks of the following year further accelerated the market drop. It was really hard, right? You're being judged publicly. The business was actually growing, but the share price was collapsing. We were being blamed for the entire ills of the stock market. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm whining, but that's what it was, right? People were absolutely vile about me personally. I got thousands of letters from people who'd invested their money and felt that I'd lost it, even though the maximum you could invest was £130, which I'm not denying is not still money, but it was not £10,000. And it was really tough. So all these people that had loved our company suddenly loathed it. None of us have been in this insane moment in time before. And I don't think many people have since, frankly. And we were trying to grow a business at pace, grow it at scale, as well as keeping people steady. And it was just scary. Despite the intense pressure Martha Lane was under, she stayed on and sold the company into a pre-tax profit in 2003. You know, I feel forever grateful that I was able to go on that journey. Of course, there were things that we should have done differently. And of course, there were some surprises and so on. But it was such an extremely, extremely outlying career opportunity. I, I just, I feel so lucky to have been part of it. Marta walked away from the startup world and took time off. But five months later, in early May 2004, when on holiday in Morocco, she was in a horrific car crash, where she broke 28 bones and had a stroke and would spend two years in hospital. The crash, yes, it happened, of course, but it changed my whole life again. I sometimes joke that I'm the only person to survive a dot-com crash and a real-world crash in quick succession. Um, and you know, everything changed and it's changed every day last year. I was in hospital most of the year. I nearly lost my leg and nearly died again. It's such a profound experience. I've had two such monumental experiences, one in my career and one in my personal life. Of course, they're connected in some ways and without LastMinute.com, I probably would have died because I wouldn't have had the resources to get the care, get out of Morocco, all the things that enabled me to be able to function to a degree. So they are linked um, and I just feel like... Uh, all they've done, in fact, is reinforce what I hope I always thought was important, which is have purpose, work hard, be nice to people, and try and contribute to the world. And lastminute.com enabled me to do that, and I hope the accident just reinforced that. It didn't, I think, change everything. I think it just doubled down on the things I think are important. Marta went on to be a director at numerous companies and organisations, including Twitter. 
She also funded DNA tests that campaigned for justice for death row prisoners in America. In one case, she paid for the DNA test that proved the innocence of Ryan Matthews, who's facing a death penalty in Louisiana. It's very different. You know, my life is very, very different. And I, you know, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I hate that question. I think honestly the only thing I'd say is fucking wear your seatbelt. I mean, that's it, right? That would have been the most substantial shift to my life would have been wearing my seatbelt. But there we go. Them's the break. Just got to carry on. Like any movement or wave, it can be difficult to be precise about when Web 1.0 ended. But the term Web 2.0 was certainly popularised by Cork-born Tim O'Reilly, who set up the first Web 2.0 summit in San Francisco in October 2004. O'Reilly saw the mission of the summit to, quote, reignite enthusiasm for the computer industry after the dot-com crash. The banner ad era and, you know, the failures of uh, uh, too much money chasing uh, too few business models to this Web 2.0 as we defined it as the design of applications that harness the intelligence of their users. It was a hugely popular conference and ran until the end of the decade, at which point another conference called Web Summit had started and Web 2.0 was in the ascendancy. And that brings a close to this short tour of Web 1.0. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. If you liked it, please consider subscribing to the Irish Times. It's just one euro for the first month. If subscribing isn't for you, there's still loads of great writing on philosophy, media and culture on theirishtimes.com that you might be interested in that isn't behind a paywall. This podcast was made by me, Enzo Dowd, and Head of Audio in the Irish Times, Declan Conlon. Artwork is by Paul Scott, and the music is by Kirk Ozamo and Sergei Tremisov.